helping me out here tonight. Bible right here, so uh, and I moved it yesterday, and I knew I was going to regret it, so uh, I have to leave my Bible here, or I will forget it. Philippians tonight, Philippians here this evening. Uh, I'm excited about this lesson here tonight. It's a, it's a good one. Oh, I know what I was going to say now, just hit me, is that um, we have Facebook with our all here, but we're also are now able to stream uh, YouTube uh, live, too, and so, and uh, so that's that's going also, so that's what you're seeing all back there uh, with all the equipment and everything. So uh, so we praise the Lord for that. Somebody donated all that equipment uh, to the church, and so uh, praise the Lord for that. And uh, but anyhow, uh, Philippians here tonight. Philippians chapter number one is where we'll be at this evening, and uh, we're going to read from verse number twenty all the way down to verse number twenty-six. Okay, uh, if you're there, say Amen. Amen. All right. Um, to give you a little exercise, why don't you stand up while we read tonight? All right. So, uh, okay. Here we find in verse number twenty, uh, Paul's writing. Remember what we're talking about? We're talking about joy. Okay. Um, we call us, we're finding the different ways in which joy is presented in the uh, Epistle to the Philippians, and it's found several different ways. And tonight, we're going to find that uh, we need to have. The joy of putting others first. Uh, the joy of putting others first. All right, look at verse number 20. It says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Don't misquote that verse, right? It's for to me. Uh, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That too is very important. We won't get to that tonight. But uh, for to me, for my personally, he's saying to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he says in verse 22, But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I will not. Where what means what? It means I don't know what to choose here. Uh, I'm in a strait betwixt two, he says. I don't know what to do because I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And how many of us would agree that perhaps you don't want to uh, die tonight or anything, but you would all have to agree that if you did, uh, that it'd be far better to be in heaven and in glory than to be in this sin-sick, cursed world that we're in. And, uh, and to be there is much better. But Paul was really facing that, wasn't he? I mean, uh, he was in prison. Uh, he had perhaps uh, his life was on the line many a times as we're going to see here in just a moment. And so he experienced many tragedies. And so uh, he's speaking from a heart here to the Philippians. And he says, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, and there's that important word, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. When he says abide in the flesh, that doesn't mean um, the carnality of the flesh. He's not talking about living in a fleshly state, state like, a, like sometimes the Bible says, you know, uh, don't walk in the flesh. He's not talking about that. He's meaning the literal flesh, the little body is what he's speaking of in that, and that's in this part right here. And he says, it's more needful for me to abide here in the flesh. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance. And here it is. Here's our key words tonight. And joy of faith. And he says it again. 
It's a little bit different word, though, in verse 26, but the same idea that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by, come, by my coming to you again. You may be seated. Paul was ready to be offered for Christ. There's no doubt about that. He was ready to meet his Lord. That's a good question maybe for us to start off with. Are you ready to meet God? Are you ready to meet the Lord? If you were to stand before God this evening, uh, God forbid that that would happen and leave your family and friends behind in your job and your workplace and your church. Um, and he said to you, why should I let you into my kingdom? Now, this is a, a fake scenario. This isn't going to really happen or anything, but I'm just putting this scenario. And he said, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would your response be? Oftentimes, people will respond like this. Well, I've been a good person, God. I've been a good person. You know, when I tell people like that, I try to be endearing with them, and I say, you know what? That's a, that's a really good answer. Why do I say that? Because I want people to be good people. Amen? I don't want people to be bad people. Amen? So I say, that's a good answer. I say, but it's the wrong answer. It's the wrong answer. But you see, our goodnesses and our righteousnesses are not going to be what allows us to gain access into glory one day. It's only through the precious blood of Jesus Christ the Lord that saves any of us. That's how we enter in through the, into the kingdom of God the precious blood of Christ by believing that Christ died for our sins he was buried and then he rose again the third day and if God were to ask me that question I would have this confidence enough to say God it's because you saved me because God I believe that you died for me and that you rose again on the third day and you promised me God God, you promised me that if I would believe you, and you said in your word that you are a God that cannot lie. Amen? And you said that before the worlds began, if somebody would believe in you and put their faith and trust in you, and in your son, Jesus Christ, that you would save them. And Lord, that's what I'm banking on. Nothing of my good works, nothing that I have done, only in Christ. And I believe God will welcome me into the kingdom, not based upon what I have done but because of what Christ has done for me. And so the question is, at the beginning here, is that, or to, the, just to state that plainly, is that Paul was excited. Paul was glad. Paul had no trepidation, you might say, in meeting the Lord in the air. He had no fear that he was going to go to hell. He knew he was going to heaven. He knew he was going to meet his Lord one day, and he was excited about it. But it had been about approximately about 25 years in this particular passage here since Paul had met the Lord on the road to Damascus. And it had been 25 long years, in fact. Through those years, if you remember, he had gone through several beatings. Three times he received 40 stripes, save one. Three times he was beaten, 39 times. Can you imagine that? Uh, he had been stoned to death and then risen again. He had been in prison. He had fasted. He had been hungry. And then on top of all that, he said, I had the care of all the churches, right? Don't forget that he was shipwrecked, right? Spent a day and a night in the sea. And he says he's ready to meet his Savior. It is believed by this point in our text here that he had already seen 
uh, his vision of the third heaven. So he's already prepared. He knows what to expect. So in many respects, he had reasons to go and be with the Lord. In fact, he says that he wants to go with me. And in fact, he said it's better, right, for me to go than to stay here. That's, it's a better thing to do, fleshly speaking, if you will. So Paul was prepared, he was ready, and he was waiting for his real home in heaven. But here is the catch. All right? You ready for it? He looked across the horizon, and he sees a church, and he sees people, and he sees more work to be done. He sees more people that need to be encouraged, and he sees more souls that need to be saved. There's the catch. And so he says, it is more needful for me to abide in the flesh. How did Paul know that he wouldn't die right then? How can he say so confidently in verse 25, and having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. I can answer that by saying this, is that he had this particular aspect going for him. It was called the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. He had the apostles' inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God that abided upon him. The Holy Spirit of God inspired him to write these words, and he understood that, and he graciously and humbly accepted that calling to continue on instead of dying there where he was at at that point. He was tired, I'm sure, of what was happening. He was tired of the last 25 years that had gone through, but he was ready and willing to find great joy, and here's our message tonight, our great joy in putting others first. Now, there's a small issue that I want to deal with, and my mind, you know, uh, as a, not all, not all the things that I believe are going to always remain the same. I changed my belief on something today. And so, all right, not on Christ or anything like that, all right, don't get scared. But I was, something just popped out at me today, and that was this. If Paul is saying to them, in verse, and we know that Paul's in, in prison at this point. We know Paul is imprisoned in Philippians, but he says to them, he says, I have this confidence, and I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me, uh, by me coming to you again. So how is it that Paul went from the Roman prison to the people in Philippi? What's happening here? I thought that he died in the Philippian jail. That's what I was, uh, that's what I was told. How does this coincide, all of it together? So uh, this is a teaching point, but it's going to be a great applicational point, too, as we're going to see here in the message also here tonight. How does this coincide, though, with the fact that he was... Uh, by many church historians believed to be put to death by the hand of Nero in the form of martyrdom. Uh, is this just wishful thinking? You know, in Philippians chapter number 1, verses number 25 and 26, is that what it is? Is it just Paul saying, I hope to see you again? Uh, well, as I read today, as I was reading even some today, I found out that many people, many Bible scholars do believe that Paul uh, was released. Uh, from the Roman prison. But I'm not just here to tell you what Bible scholars say. I want to know what the Bible says, right? And so one thing that convinces me that Paul, this is not Paul's only imprisonment. I believe that Paul was, has 
four, three missionary journeys. You know about those? He has three journeys. He has got uh, one journey that's very localized, and then he's got two journeys that are very, uh, very broad, and they go out. This is where he visits Philippi and Ephesus and all these other places in Macedonia, and he has a Macedonia vision and, and acts there. And then we find that Paul goes back to Jerusalem, and he is arrested there in Acts chapter number 22. And then he's sent up to Caesarea, and he's tried there, and he appeals to Rome, and he's there, goes to Rome, he's shipwrecked, and he finally makes it to Rome. And then Acts chapter number 28 ends by telling us that Paul is in house arrest. Well, what convinced me when I studied this out was why there's two imprisonments is this, is that in 2 Timothy, Paul's not in house arrest anymore. Paul's in the dungeon. There's a two totally different scenarios that are happening. And Acts 28, Paul is freely able to go and uh, freely able to allow people to come and go as they please. He can receive friends. He can write letters. He can study. He can sleep comfortably. In fact, he has whole groups coming into the house and visiting at that time. Timothy, in 2 Timothy, nobody's visiting him. Nobody's talking to him. He doesn't even have the scriptures. He doesn't even have the books. He doesn't even have a coat to put on. It's uncomfortable. It's also uh, that we find in other places, like in Titus, we find him wintering in Nicopolis. We find him visiting Crete. Unlike in the rest of his missionary journeys, never one time does he visit Crete. He stops in and is out. He's nourished. There's no visit there. But he was there in Crete long enough to see the churches and see them establish and establish and begin to talk to Titus and tell him he need to establish these elders in these places and uh, drew out a plan. We also find in 1 Timothy him leaving others behind in Ephesus and also Miletum. He tells Philemon also, not only does he tell the Philippians, but he also tells Philemon uh, that he would see him again. And where was Paul writing that when he wrote to Philemon? He was in prison. I believe he was under house arrest. I believe that Paul was in house arrest and he wrote Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon. But upon his second arrest, which I believe was supposedly in Nicopolis because it was the winter time, and he's transported back to Rome, and it's there that he writes his last prison epistle, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. You say, what does this all mean to me? You'll see here in a moment. In 2 Timothy, the language is much different. In 2 Timothy, it's not, I'll see you soon. I'm coming again. I hope to see you very quickly. It's not establish this person or make sure you take care of this. It's, my departure is at hand. That's what is, that's the tone. There's really not a lot of hope in the letter of his release. He says at the first hearing, with Nero, he said, no man stood by my side. No man was with me. In fact, uh, in 2 Timothy, uh, we find out that Onesiphorus has to go looking for Paul. He doesn't know where he is. We know later on by history uh, that he was in a maritime prison, buried underneath the sea, underneath the city there, in a dungeon cell. Onesiphorus has no idea where he's at. But in Acts chapter number 28, I believe also in Philippians, 
Everybody knows where he is. The synagogue knows where he is. It would have been very obvious to know where oh, Paul's is right down here. Even in Romans, you have Paul mentioning that he had a determination to get to Spain and other places. But most of all, this telling evidence that this great difference between the house arrest and the imprisonment that takes place in 2 Timothy. So that being said, I believe that Paul was saying what he said in Philippians chapter number 1, in verse number 25 and 26, not with a half-hearted wish, but with great confidence, knowing that he would have a soon release and he would be visiting these believers again. But just think about his ministry in Rome during his first imprisonment. The Bible says in Acts chapter 28 that really when you think about it, I was meditating on this, Paul had it the easiest that he did in his whole entire ministry. The whole time that he's there, he had his own house, he had company, he had friends, he was freely allowed to preach the gospel, he made friends with the guards, he won many guards to the Lord, he also accomplished his greatest task that God had for him while on earth, and he wrote four Holy Spirit-inspired epistles that were preserved for our church today. He had no beatings, he had no shipwrecks, he had no stonings, he had no fastings in the sense of being hungered, but the Bible records this, and Paul went two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concerned the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. It's as if Paul rides off into the sunset in bliss, in a way, you know? But we know that's far from the truth. I believe this second imprisonment adds great weight to our understanding of what we're seeing here tonight in joy in putting others first. It adds great weight to the words of Paul, for after two years of rest and quietness, yet still uh, getting the gospel out, uh, any of us who are in Paul's shoes would say, uh, you know, I think I'm probably done with this traveling thing for a little while. I've got my own house. I've got my own place. I, I, I'm all right. I know you Philippians would like for me to travel land and sea and come back and see you again, but I've got it pretty good here. We're establishing things. We're getting things going here in Rome. I'm all right. But was that his attitude? Of course not. Why? Because Paul found joy in serving others. He had great joy in serving others. He had joy in putting others' needs before his own needs. He found joy getting in a boat, although it might have probably had him, uh, though they didn't have the word back then, suffer a little PTSD from the last time that he was in a boat. You know, the last time that he was in a boat, he was shipwrecked, and he was in the sea a night and a day. Then he had to spend a whole winter on an island full of barbarians. He was bitten by a snake. I mean, <laughs> and it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't good news. And now he's getting back in boats again and traveling again. Can you imagine this man, 60-something years old perhaps, uh, beaten uh, so many times, 39 times, three times, three different occasions, stoned to death, hunched over. Uh, you know, uh, bones that had been broken uh, were not properly mended back in those days, you know? Can you imagine the pain? How many of you wake up with pain in the morning? 
You wake up with some pain. My shoulder's in pain. I'm not pain, but I feel my shoulder every single day. I feel it right now. <laughs> I think I'll feel it the rest of my life. That's okay, though. That's all right. The Lord just uses it to humble me. That's what he did with Jacob, didn't he? It's all right. But I'm sure he had, he had pain. He had arthritis like none of us have ever experienced. Uh, he, had, he had issues. But he found joy getting back there to the synagogues and preaching the gospel, though most people didn't like what he had to say. He found joy in getting arrested again, perhaps, as I said, at Nicopolis in the wintertime. He found joy in traveling back to Rome a second time, knowing that this would be his last time, for it would be at this place that he would uh, suffer martyrdom. But most of all, he found joy in seeing and encouraging the faith of believers. I take that view because if you go back to Philippians chapter number 4, chapter number 1 and verse number 4, he writes these words always in every prayer of mine for you all, <coughs> excuse me, making request with joy. With joy. He had joy over these believers. Even in 2 Timothy, Paul is not concerned about his own wealth or health. Excuse me, and his well-being. But Timothy's, for he writes, he greatly was desiring to see thee. He says, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. Oh, it will bring me such great joy to see your face again, Timothy. And then he writes a whole entire letter to encourage Timothy. And Paul is the one in, in the dungeon. Think about that. He is the one that's suffering. He's the one that needs somebody needs to write a letter to, right? And he's the one that's encouraging someone. He's the one that's doing that. Man, people that have learned to suffer under the mighty hand of God and that have learned how to stay faithful in that suffering. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've walked into Miss Tammy Ross's hospital room and she's looked up at me and said, Pastor, it's good to see you. Said, how are you and the children doing? I said, Miss Tammy, I'm not here to talk to you about my children and me. And I don't mean, worry about me. You know, I'm up walking around. You're the one in the hospital bed. People that learn to suffer you know, from the for the cause of Jesus Christ, they're able to ask others, how are you doing? They're able to minister to others. You know, that's a powerful ministry. A powerful ministry. For here is one that is invalid, here is one that is sick, here is one that is in prison, and yet they're asking me how I'm doing? It should be the opposite way. But all people that are filled with the Spirit of God and have that understand where joy really comes from will begin to be able to help others in their time of trial and need, even though they are in great times of trials and need. He says, I have this confidence. I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. 
Paul believed in putting others first. He was willing, if you will, to step outside of his comfort zone in order that he might bring joy and encouragement and peace to those that needed it most. That's where joy begins in our own hearts and lives. That's where joy starts at. We've been preaching through this little series on joy, and we've been saying that there's joy to be found in prayer. Are you praying? Say, I don't have any joy. Are you praying? All right? We found that in the next part passage in, in Philippians 1.18, there's joy to be found in preaching the gospel. Do you enjoy listening to the preaching of the Word of God? Do you enjoy preaching the gospel yourself? Do you, do you enjoy telling other people about Jesus Christ? I want joy. Well, have you told somebody else about Jesus? These are just little prescriptive ways in which Christians can find joy. And then he says here, he says, it's not about me, it's about you. Putting others first. Jesus, others, and you. What a wonderful way to spell joy. That's how you spell joy. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. In that song it says, why is for you so whatever you do, put yourself last and spell joy. That's what Paul was doing. Putting himself last. Stepping outside of his comfort zone. Where do you find joy? Where do I find joy? Do you find joy in helping yourself? Do you find joy in providing for your own needs and doing what you love? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of that. I'm just asking you, or does your heart swell up with joy when you're able to help somebody else? You might say, it would be far better for me to take care of this project that I really need to do, but for their sake, I will help them. I really need to do this. I really need to take care of this. I'd rather be doing this over here. I'd rather, I'd rather go over This would be better for me. But you know what? For the sake of somebody else, and for their joy and for my joy, I'll help them. That's what Paul was doing. And then notice this also. We find their joy. I was speaking of Paul's joy in that second point, but also we find their joy and rejoicing. We know that Paul had joy in view because he loved them. He was, the Philippians were his joy. He prayed for them in joy. But as I'm focusing in on, uh, as, as we're focusing in on past Paul's joy, we should also see that the Philippians, Paul really had a passion that the Philippians be joyful. That's something that is even... Uh, even more mind-blowing, you might say, is that I can have joy through helping others? Yes. Yes, you can. But in the same sense, the, the next spiritual step is this, is that are you willing to help others to have joy? Do you want other people to be joyful? Amen? You want other people to be happy? Now, we understand this a little bit whenever it concerns our children. Us that have children in here tonight probably understand this. You understand that you want to, oftentimes, you might put your the joys of your children, the enjoyments of your children, uh, before your joys and your desires. That's what a parent does. That's just not, that should be what's... Uh, that should be what a that should be what a parent does. But 
What about the joys of others that are around us? What about the joys of others that are in the church? He tells them, I know I will abide for your furtherance and joy. The word furtherance in our text here in verse number 25, he says, and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. The word furtherance means progress. It means progress. It means growth. Paul had it in his heart to return to Philippi again in order that he might progress them on in their spiritual journey in Christ. This is really selfless and spiritual thinking when you think about it. It's a selfless spiritual thinking. I'm putting my needs aside in order that I might minister and help the needs of others. I'm putting down what my what I what I think I need, and I'm going to go out and I'm going to minister to someone else. He says, for the furtherance of your faith, he wanted their faith to grow. He wanted it to expand. He was willing to leave his comfort zones in order that they might accomplish this feat, even risk arrest again, and he did so, or suffer because of it, and he did so. He was willing to do whatever it took so that their furtherance of faith could happen. What are we willing to give up to give others joy in the Holy Ghost? What are we willing to sacrifice in order that others may have joy? Joy of faith. He says in verse 26 that your rejoicing may be more abundant. That they may be extremely happy. I'll say, you know, it's really better for me just to stay here in Rome and bide my time and let everything kind of work itself out here. It's really, and, and just pass on and go to glory. That's what's better. Physically speaking. I'm going to get in a boat again. I don't have to worry about suffering again. I don't have to worry about any of those kinds of things again. Just abide my time, go on to glory. Alright? And sad. That's what sometimes we can get in the habit of doing as Christians. He said, I'm not very spiritual, Pastor. You don't know my spirit. You don't know that I don't really know the Bible that much. I'm not like you. I didn't go to Bible college or anything like that. I'm not very, very good in some things. Listen, if you're here on a Wednesday night, I guarantee there's somebody, there's some Christian out there in this world that's gotten backslidden, that's gotten away from God, that's gotten away from church for a little while, and you could encourage them. Not by beating on their heads. Why don't you just text them and say, hey man, I've been praying for you. Been praying for you. I want to get together next week, and uh, I was reading the book of John, and uh, I just had some thoughts on that I'd like to share it with you. I mean, that's simple, isn't it? How many of you know John 3.16? Anybody? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that his Lord believed in him. That's what the kids are memorizing over there. They get that stuff first. They got down first. You know, I say, hey, I've memorized this verse. Have you ever memorized this verse? 
yonder in the rabbit hole. Hey, what's been rising together? Real simple stuff. You don't have to be this college-educated, 20-year veteran at church in order to encourage somebody in Christ. Amen? You don't got to be a pastor. You don't have to be a missionary. You don't have to be a Sunday school teacher. You don't have to be any of those things. You just need to be a Christian. And if you're a Christian, then you can encourage another Christian in the Lord. You say, what if they're older than me? You know what? It would it'd be good for you to encourage them too. Sometimes we get intimidated by people. But you know what? Whenever you go up to somebody that you're intimidated by that's a Christian, if they're a true Christian, a godly Christian, a humble Christian, you know what? They're going to be encouraged by what you say to them. If they're not, then come tell me. I'll straighten them out. And so, uh, I'm just joking. I'm just saying tonight is that we can encourage folks in the Lord and bring them joy and happiness. You know, I tell our kids, I say, you know, if you see somebody that's new at the church and you've never seen them before, just try to go up and just, you don't have to do much, just at least go up and, and shake their hand. Tell them we're glad to see you today. I mean, that's, that's all I'm asking. I'm not asking you to strike up a conversation, I'm not asking you any of those kinds of things. Just if you see somebody you've never seen before, just go up to them and say, Glad to see you today. Thank you for coming. You don't know how many people have come to this church that has one of the, and they don't, some of them don't always come back for different reasons and whatever reasons I'm not here to argue about any of that. But I'll tell you what, is that the people that do come will never accuse, I don't want this church to ever be accused of not being friendly. At least somebody coming up to them saying, hi, how's it going? Good to see you. Thank you for coming. We appreciate you being here. What about the potential of lost souls? The potential of joy that not only you would experience, but what if you told somebody about Jesus Christ? Told somebody about the Lord? What if 10 of us told 10 people, what if 10 of us uh, had told 10 people about the Lord this week or in the next two weeks? How many people would that be? Well, if 10 of us told 10 people, how many would that be? Somebody got through with the math. 100, yes. 100, all right. Could you imagine, would you think that if we personally told 10 people, each of 10 people told 10 people personally that we knew about the Lord, do you think the odds of that there might be one person that might come to church? I'd say that's pretty good odds. You know how most people come to church? The majority of the people is they have a friend or a neighbor that tells them about a good church. It's really what happens. Now some people, I know some of y'all came not for that reason. But many times, that's what happens. Put down the football game for a minute. Go solo. Go talk to your neighbor. You want to say, no, I, can, I, I don't have to do that right now. I don't have to enjoy that pleasure right now. I don't have to watch that show right now. You know, I can call that person on the phone and talk to them about the Lord and just tell them, hey, we'd love for you to come out this Sunday 
and just uh, be with us. You know, the next time that you're out in your front yard and your neighbor's walking out there at the exact same time that you are, and, the, and you hear a little voice in your head that says, invite them to church. Can I tell you, can I encourage you? That's not the devil talking to you. Okay? That's not the devil. Alright? So you can rest assured of that. Alright? And it's, and it's not the flesh. I know that because the flesh is screaming at you going, whatever they think about you. You know? That's what the, that's what the flesh will scream at you. So it's the Holy Spirit of God. He's not going to say it in all voice. He's not going to write it in the sky on that, perhaps. But he is going to put it press upon your heart. The next time you see somebody out there is that you're going to say, hey, invite them to church. He grabbed a couple of those gospel tracks that are those brand new ones. Just hand them. Just hand them one of those. Tell them about the Lord. Have you thought about taking somebody under your arm and just and discipling them? You say, how do I disciple somebody? Well, there's lots of ways, but let me give you a real simple way to disciple somebody. All right? Find somebody that you know, find another believer in Christ, and just say, hey, let's read the Bible together one time a week. That's pretty simple, isn't it? You know what will happen in that, in that time? Is that you're going to read one chapter of the Bible together, and you're going to start talking about that chapter. And you're going to start talking about some things. And you're going to start wondering, hey, what's this, and what's that, and, 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 and oh man, I got to have this, and everything. It's going to be enjoyable. And fun. Encouragement. How about writing an encouraging letter to a brother or sister in Christ, reaching out to them? Well, I'm just so busy. I have so much going on. I have, uh, well, all of us have some time during the week when we can put down what we're doing and just encourage someone. Give them a call. Write a note. Send them a text message. Comfort. Comfort is, is where you actually spend time with somebody. Or you actually take some time out of your schedule to talk to somebody and spend some time with somebody. You visit somebody. You invite them out to lunch and sit down and chat. Why? So that you can have a better day? No. So that you can impart some joy into somebody else's life. And what, the, what will happen is that you'll begin to experience joy. It's a circular effect is what happens. Let me close with this, though. He says, That your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Look, it's more than that. It's more than, it's more than just you experiencing joy by encouraging others. It's more than others experiencing joy because you're encouraging them. It's more than all of that. It's about this, is that they might have abundant rejoicing in Jesus Christ. Their joy, though, is not contingent based upon Paul's return. You have to understand that, that what he's saying here is not contingent based upon that. It's the contingent based solely upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. Their fellowship, Paul's fellowship and the Philippians' fellowship with each other is based upon the gospel. That's what ties them together. So it is with the church. Our fellowship with one another is not based upon liking the same things. Our fellowship with each other is based upon Jesus Christ, the gospel. The gospel. 
Our fellowship with one another is, is, and our joy is founded in these things. The basis of our glorying, and really the word rejoicing there means boasting. It means glorying is what it means. He's saying that the glory and the boasting all comes not because Paul says, I'm coming to see you. It's because of Jesus Christ. It's because of him and what he has done and the fellowship that we have in one another. That is the bedrock. Christ is the bedrock of our joy. And we rejoice and we boast and we cheer because we're in Christ. And we're saved. We're born again. We're regenerated. As one pastor said, we've been regened. Amen? We've been changed. We've been transformed. We're different now. And we take joy in that and telling others and ministering to others. What, who makes all of this possible? Christ. Christ and his power and his resurrection and his Holy Spirit makes joy possible. Christ makes eternal life possible. Christ makes fellowship possible. So why put others first and why will there be joy in putting others first? Because of Christ. Because that's what Christ did. Because that's what Jesus laid out for us as the example. He put his vacation down so he could minister to the needs of others. Putting others before ourselves will not only restore joy in our hearts, but it will also bring great joy to others through Christ. Father, thank you.